Hey, we're going to pray together and then we're going to get into God's Word. I'm going to ask Brian Stewart, one of our elders, to come and lead us in a time of prayer. As he's coming, would you think of just a few things that you would like to lay before the throne of God and do that this morning and we'll pray together as a church about those things. Let us pray. Father God, it is so great to hear laughter in your church. So great that you have given us that gift. But Lord, help us to refocus and realize that this, this time is set aside for you, to worship you, to come before you, Lord, with our hearts and bear them to you and our needs, but uh, ultimately, Lord, to, to worship you. Thank you that we can do that. Thank you we have the freedom to do that. Lord, let us never quit thanking you for that. And Lord, as uh, Phil brings your message today, I pray that your spirit will give it power. I pray that you will speak to each one of us individually, to our hearts, Father. And I pray that uh, we walk out of here and leave this building today still worshiping and praising you. We thank you for all of our blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're getting ready to wrap up this series of sermons on eternity. I wanted to preach the message that we're going to today, simply titled, Why Christians in 2016 Should Speak of Eternity. A number of Christians, even, have chosen not to. Anymore, they have said that, that there's no point in that, and so they've lost all of their zeal for speaking of eternity. But that is a huge mistake. It really is. And as I put together the title for this message and started studying for the meat of the message, I found a quote that sums up the very answer to my question, why Christians in 2016 should speak of eternity. It, uh, it really captures the essence of it better than anything else I've seen or have come up with myself. This is from Ryan Dobson. Take a look at this. Think about this. Speaking of the people that are very close to you, you don't know when these people are going to die. They could get into a car today and be killed on the way home. Did they ever hear about Jesus? God has put you in their lives to be His ambassador. You're His megaphone, through which He wants to call out to them to come to Him and be saved. That is a great answer to the question, why Christians in 2016 should speak of eternity for this very reason. In the midst of his quote, we find this really interesting term, and I'm glad it's there because it's a biblical term. Ryan would refer to Christians as God's ambassador. Like I said, it's actually a biblical term, so for him to put it in there the way he did is absolutely marvelous. Let me show it to you in the Bible. If you brought your Bibles with you, open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. So we read this verse, listen for that same word again. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, there it is, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now the Apostle Paul is the one who said that. He's the one who first used that word, and then Ryan Dobson capitalized on the idea of it. When Paul wrote that we were Christ ambassadors, he was more than likely thinking about the way that word would have been used during the time that he was writing, and he was thinking about the people in which it would have been used. You see, Rome was governing everything during those days. They had provinces all over the land that were a part of the colony, the Roman colony. And those provinces were broken into a lot of different segments, but predominantly two different ones. They had what they referred to as the senatorial provinces. The senatorial provinces were at peace with Rome. 
There was no rebellion within their borders. Everybody had pretty much submitted and surrendered to the rule of Rome. Even though they may not have agreed with everything the government was doing, they were very much at peace with what Rome was trying to accomplish. But then there were the imperial provinces. Israel would have been an imperial province. There was always an undercurrent of rebellion rumbling just below the surface in these places. There were groups of people that were not happy with being colonized by Rome. They wanted to govern themselves. They wanted to make their own decisions. They didn't just want to be absorbed into the whole. So there was always this sense of an uprising that could come at the drop of a hat. So Rome did a very interesting thing. They sent ambassadors to all of those imperial provinces. The ambassadors had specific jobs. Keep the peace. Do whatever it took. If they had a written job description, it would have had seven points on it, and it would have looked just like this. They were to move to a foreign country. Now, most of them would have come from Rome. They would have been sent all over the land. In this particular application, they would have been sent to the nation of Israel. So they had to leave what was comfortable to them, move to a foreign country. And then number two, they had to learn the language. You can imagine that that was of the utmost importance. If you are going to go and, and try to keep the peace and try to keep these people from rising up against you, you better know the language. And once they did, it would allow them to do this, to respect the people and the culture. If they were going to accomplish what Rome wanted them to, this had to happen. They had to be respectful not only of the people but the culture, and therefore they had to become a part of that culture. Then number four could happen. They were commanded to not say or do anything that would reflect poorly on the king. Now, that, that could be tough marching orders, particularly what they were having to deal with. But still, that was a part of the job description of an ambassador. Number five. Then they were to communicate the king's message to the foreign dignitaries. There were people in positions of authority and power that would have other folks underneath them. So the ambassador would make sure that he communicated to them so that they could communicate to everybody around them and they could keep the peace. Number six, though would oftentimes be put right in front of them. When they were talking to these dignitaries, they would put out all kinds of different issues and ideas, and sometimes they would have to press for a decision. They would have to push those people in positions of power and authority to do the right things. And even if they didn't, the ambassadors still had this as their seventh marching order. Here it is. They were to not burn any bridges. Even if the people in positions of authority refused to do what they were commanded to do by the ambassador, the ambassador was to keep the peace and possibly circle back around at another time and try to get them on board with what Rome was trying to accomplish. So don't burn any bridges. That's exactly what they were commanded to do. Well, by the time we get from the political application of that into the biblical application, what we find is the Apostle Paul is saying this to every Christian. You have the same job description. Only the king that we work for is the king of kings. We are his ambassadors, and we're supposed to take the job very seriously. 
So let's use those same seven marching orders and apply it to what Christians are supposed to do. Number one, we have to move to a foreign country. Peter would teach in his first letter that once you become a Christian, you are an alien and a stranger living in a foreign country. You can go to the book of 1 Peter and read that for yourself. There's two different times that he calls it out. We are aliens and strangers living here. When you became a Christian, you began to live heavenward. Your home, your residence was no longer the earth, but it became heaven. And as a result of that, when we are here on earth, we're living as aliens. We're living as strangers. Nothing groundbreaking about that. For a Christian that has had their life transformed by Jesus Christ, that makes perfect sense. So once we understand that, then we know that we have to learn the language of the people that we're living around. There's a a number of people that have done a great disservice to Christianity by only speaking Christian language. If you are a Christian speaking to a non-Christian and all you ever say are Christian words, Christian language, you're probably going to confuse the non-Christian more than anything else. So we have to learn the language. Not all of it, by the way. But we have to learn the language so that we are understandable to those that we are trying to communicate with. Then we have to respect the people and the culture. And sometimes it it saddens me to say that Christians have not done that very well. We haven't been respectful of those that have other beliefs. and, And that's caused us some problems or people that reject our beliefs. And then we have have made statements about the culture that though are right, they're not always delivered the right way. So number four allows us then to not say or do anything that reflects poorly on the king that we represent. Let me ask you, if you're a Christian, how many of you have messed that one up at times? So have I. Number five, we have to communicate the king's message to foreign dignitaries. That's everybody around us. When we communicate the king's message, we're communicating salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the message that we communicate. There will be a time when we are communicating that message that we'll be asked to press for a decision, to ask people if they're ready to respond to what we have shared. They may say yes and they may say no, and in the event that they say no, don't burn any bridges because you may have opportunity to circle back. You may have opportunity to come back around and present the message again. Here's the thing about this biblical idea of being an ambassador. The question is not whether you are one. You are. The Bible's already laid that out. So am I. Every believer is an ambassador for God. The question is, are you a good one? That's the question we all have to wrestle with. That's the question that we all have to try to figure out. That's the question that most of us at some point will stumble over. Am I a good ambassador for Christ? Am I doing the job the way I am supposed to? There is an urgency to this, and it's one that we all need to grab. Wonderful preacher named Brian Jones communicates the urgency very well. He says, you are God's plan for evangelism. Now, I've known that for a long time. So have many of you. God's children are his plan for evangelism. It's been that way since the end of the Gospels and the beginning of the book of Acts. The Lord told us, every believer, you go out into the world and you preach the gospel and you preach it in such a way that people will respond. We are God's plan. A lot of times people will ask, why is it that way? 
Why didn't God figure out a different way to call people to him and, and present an opportunity to repent of their sins and be redeemed and be transformed? Why didn't he do that in a different way instead of wanting to use us? I wish there was a clear-cut answer for it. I don't have one. The simple truth is, this is God's plan. Why he did it the way he did, I don't know. This is God's plan. So we have to act on that. Brian Jones goes on to say that there is no plan B. If you fail, the heavens are not going to open up. Jesus is not going to swoop in at the last minute and present another means of redemption for people. Angels are not going to come down and miraculously present information to your neighbors and your friends and your co-workers. They're not going to wake up with the information that they need just laying on their pillow if you don't provide it. You are God's plan and there is no plan B. So the urgency is there for every one of us. It does leave us, though, in a place where we say, how do I pull that off? And why does it have to be me? And why do I have to bear that responsibility? And and thankfully, the Bible will answer that question for us. We're still in the book of 2 Corinthians. In fact, we're still in chapter 5. Just back up with me to verse 11 and listen to what Paul says. There are three different answers to the why question. Verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. There's answer number one. Because you know what it is to fear God, because you have a relationship with Him, it becomes your responsibility, my responsibility, our responsibility to persuade other people. Solely because of what we have experienced in Christ, we try to bring other people on board. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Now here's the second reason why. Because of Christ's love. We have already experienced something miraculous through the redeeming power of Christ's blood. And because of the love that we have for Him, it compels us to share that same love with other people. That's the driving force behind all evangelism. Because you love God, you want other people to love God. See how it builds the urgency? But then listen to what he goes on to say. And He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them And was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor I heard you, in the day of salvation I helped you. Now listen to this, here's answer number three. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor, now is the day of salvation. 
It is because of this fear of God, this loving fear of God that we all have as Christians and the compelling power of Christ's love within us that we are supposed to be actively involved in sharing the gospel with other people in evangelism. But the real reason is this, because today may very well be the day of salvation for those that you're speaking with. Today may be the day that God appointed for them to become Christians, and you're the one to lead them. You're the one to make that happen, not because you provide salvation. God did that through His Son, but because you show it to Him. Today may well be the day of salvation. And as Ryan Dobson said in that quote, there may be no tomorrow. So there's an urgency that causes each one of us to say that if I don't get actively involved here, this friend of mine or my family member may leave this world without ever having heard the message of Jesus Christ and His love and the redeeming, reconciling power of it. And do you know what that means? It means that they're on a path to hell. And if this was their last day on this earth and they never heard the message, that's where they'll be tomorrow. See the urgency? That's why we do this. Still, when we use the word evangelism, it it causes a lot of people to just break into a cold sweat. It causes people to say, I can't do that. That's why we hired you, preacher. You take care of all of that. And we have a church staff. They'll take care of that. We have elders. They'll take care of that. I shouldn't have to do that. Well, that would all work out beautifully if that's what the Bible taught. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that everyone, every believer in Jesus Christ is a preacher. Every believer in Jesus Christ has a pulpit. It may look different than this, but you have a pulpit. Just as I do, you have a pulpit. And a lot of people would say, gosh, it's really easy for you, Phil. You're a minister and you get to tell people about Jesus all the time. And yes, that's true. I have the wonderful privilege of doing that. So do you. It's just a choice that you have to make to pick up that wonderful opportunity and speak about the things of God on a regular basis. You see, evangelism at the very heart of it is defined like that. It is speaking the things of God. That's all evangelism is. It is speaking the things of God. If you have been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ and you know even a smattering of God's word, then you can speak it. Now, it doesn't always have to be verbal. Sometimes nonverbal communication works wonders. And we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes, the way that will play out. All you have to do is be ready to respond to what people say. So here's what I say. When people are getting real intense about evangelism and whether they can do it or not, here, I want you to listen to this. If you take nothing else with you, listen to this. Relax. Just relax. Because more often than not, evangelism happens as a second act, not a primary act. The primary act is God's responsibility. The second act is yours. So relax. In a lot of situations, evangelism happens in the response to a question about God's evident activity on the earth. God has done something, it has caught people's attention, and they ask questions about it. All you have to do is answer their questions. All you have to do is be prepared so that when the question is asked, you can walk through the door and answer the question. As in everything, including salvation, God does the heavy lifting for us. All we have to do is be faithful. That's it. So relax. It doesn't have to be this overwhelming thing. Just relax and be ready. 
And when you're ready, God will use you. Now, if you don't believe me, I want to show you how this works in the book of Acts. So you don't have to believe me. You can believe the word of God. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. I'll show you three different examples. The disciples are sitting on the southern steps of the temple. Jesus has ascended into heaven, and they have been waiting for their new marching orders, if you will, and they come. This is chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Now, you've seen that, that kind of thing play out before. Somebody becomes a Christian and people think they've had too much wine. Well, that's what's going on right now. And I don't want to pick apart this passage. I just want you to see that God is on the move. When God was on the move through the form of, of tongues of fire coming down from heaven and everybody got to hear the gospel in their own languages, they were perplexed and they asked a question, what does this mean? See how this works? Now the second act, verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. Now, he's answering the question. Are these people drunk? No. But the underlying question is, what does this mean? What did we just see? And Peter starts preaching it. This is verse 16. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter's just answering their question. What does this mean? He goes on and preaches an incredibly powerful message where he confronts them with their need for a Savior, he confronts them with their sin, and he confronts them with Jesus Christ. Cut them right to the heart. After that message was over, this is what happens. Verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what must we do to be saved? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. God opened the door. Peter was faithful. And listen. Now listen to what happens. 
With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 people responded. All Peter did was answer a question for them. God moved and Peter was there and ready. In a lot of situations, that's exactly how evangelism works. God moves, people ask a question, and all you have to do is be there and be ready. And then respond to the question. That's it. That's it. It is that simple. So when you are praying for evangelistic situations, maybe the best thing you should pray for is this. Lord, have them ask the question. Open the door. I'll walk through it, but have them ask the question. And God does. Now, there are other examples of this. Let's go to chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those that were going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Do you see what happened? God performed the miracle, people watched it, and they were amazed by it, perplexed by it. That was the first act. So then they started to ask questions based on what they had seen God do. This is verse 11. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power of godliness we made this man walk? Peter answers the question, and he preaches. All he does is share the gospel. He speaks the things of God. And in chapter 4, verse 4, this is what happens. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. That's amazing. In the first account, 3,000 people became believers. By the second account, following the exact same pattern, where God opens the door and Peter faithfully walks through it and answers the question, another 2,000 people are saved. Yes, the man that was crippled became a Christian because of the miracle, but 2,000 other people became believers, 2,000 other men became believers because of the message that Peter preached. That's the way evangelism works, so relax. God will open the door. And when his activity is evident, all you have to do is draw people's attention to him. Allow them to see him for who he is. And then watch what God does. Now, some of you are still saying, that's just too hard. I don't know that I could pull that off. I don't have the right words. I don't know the Bible well enough to actually do this. Then you need to take a look at the the last account. This is in Acts chapter 9. Saul who we will later know as the Apostle Paul, was a huge persecutor of Christians, terrible persecutor of Christians. 
In fact, he had actually been murdering believers, people that had become Christians. That's how bad he was. He was there when Stephen, the first martyr of of the new covenant, actually lost his life. Paul was there. He was a part of what was going on. Then he becomes a Christian. God gets a hold of him. People don't know what to do with that. Chapter 9, the last part of verse 19, this is what we read. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among these who call on his name? And hasn't he come there to take them as prisoners to the chief priest? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Now I want you to listen closely because you're about to hear one of the funniest verses in all of Scripture. Paul has been preaching. He has received Jesus. He's been preaching in these places. They tried to kill him in Damascus, so he left. He went to Jerusalem. He started preaching there. They tried to kill him, so the apostles had to get him out under the cover of darkness. They got him on a boat. They sent him away. And then listen to this. This is one of the funniest verses in the whole Bible. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. No preacher wants that passage to follow his story. Saul came to Jerusalem and he preached. It didn't go very well. They tried to kill him. The apostles got him out of there and the church enjoyed a time of great peace. No preacher ever wants to hear that. That's, maybe that's preacher jokes. I don't know, that, but that's good stuff. Here's what happened. Saul was living a brand new life. That's all he was doing. And his life was preaching a new message. And people couldn't believe it. My friends, there are a number of you that have that exact same pulpit. I hear it on a regular basis. I'll stand in the back before the service starts and people will come in and they look around to see who all's here and they'll say, is that really, fill in the blank, is that really that person in church? Is that really so-and-so sitting in church? I can't believe it. And if it's visitors, new people to the church and they see somebody that totally shocks them sitting in church, it blows them away. Their presence is its own testimony. Is that really your presence? Is its own testimony? Is that really... So-and-so. Now, men, listen to me on this. 95% of the time when that is said, it is said about men more than it is said about women. Guys will walk in the back and they'll see somebody maybe has lived a, a hard, kind of crusty life, and, and now here they are sitting in church, or, or they've been out and about in a community that they have been raised in, and they're living a new life in Christ, and it has caught the attention of people. And all they have to do is just live for Jesus and it becomes its own message. So that people end up saying, how did this happen? How did you become a believer? There's their question. The door is open. The second act is now yours. You tell them the story. How did you meet Jesus? They may well test you to see if your faith is really sincere. Stand up to the test, and then tell them the story. 
and you let them know how you became a believer. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Live as a new creation. That's all you have to do. You can live a redeemed life, and as a result of that, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and evangelism happens. Same thing is true with marriages that have been on the brink of complete and utter failure. When they are redeemed and brought back together, they become a testimony of God's power and they become a means of evangelism in and of themselves because they're now like this. We can preach the gospel. The same thing is true in all kinds of other broken relationships and other struggles in life. When you overcome them by the power of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, you are positioned to preach. You are positioned to share Jesus, so do it. Do it for all you're worth. There may be skeptical people out there. That's been the case all the way from the New Testament today. That hadn't changed. Let them be skeptical, but you preach. And this is where eternity comes into play. It can really help. When we get to a place where we are comfortable talking about our eternal destination. We're in a place to get into any evangelistic conversation because eternity opens that door better possibly than anything else. If somebody sits down with you and says, hey, why are you a Christian today? When you have the opportunity to say, because I wanted to know beyond the shadow of any doubt where I was going to spend eternity and I wanted it to be in heaven in the presence of God, you have their attention. That's all you have to do. Eternity comes into play beautifully in situations like that. So it becomes this key aspect for us as we're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the truth is, people have not always done it well. In fact, a number of us in this room probably at some point have been offended by how people have presented eternity. Let me just give you an example of what that could look like. Let's say you're talking to somebody that you know has lived a tough life, just a difficult life. Let me think, who can I pick on? Oh, Brian Stewart's over here. So we'll come over to Brian. And let's just say Brian and I have been friends for a number of years, and I were to sit down with Brian and say, Brian, you've just lived a terrible life, horrible life, and I need to tell you something. You're going to hell because of the life you've lived. Now, do you think Brian's going to take that very well? That's a pretty bitter pill to swallow. It really is, which, by the way, Brian Stewart's one of our elders of the church, so let me clear that up. When When we get into conversations like that, a lot of times we're giving people a bitter pill to swallow. Whereas it's different if we present our hope of heaven. Gene Apple, great preacher in California, has said for years and years and years, he has used his hope of heaven to answer people's questions like, how did he become a Christian? How did he become a preacher? How did all of these different things happen in his life? How did God get him to where he wanted to be? Gene takes him back to when he was 10 years old and his grandfather died. And in the the funeral service, heaven was mentioned. That was the first time he'd ever heard about it. And it caught his attention, and he was enthralled by it. And he started studying and digging in to figure out what he needed to know about heaven and how to make sure that he was going to be there. And through all of that, he found his way into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's all he needs. As a a powerful preacher, that's all he needs is just to talk about heaven. That's all you need. Which, by the way, let me give you this little warning. When we talk about heaven... And we tell people the truth of the Bible, which is this, that Jesus Christ is the only way there, that will be offensive to some. It really will. There will be some people that will say to you, well, there's a lot of different ways to get to heaven, and I believe that with all of my heart. 
and so you can't convince me otherwise. In fact, there's a fellow that lives here in our community, came to church with us for quite some time, and, and he heard me repeatedly say that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. And he heard me say that all of these other belief systems just fall off the page because this is the truth of the Bible, and he decided he was never going to come back to church because I wasn't accepting enough. And that's exactly what he said. I wasn't accepting enough. And I've seen him a a number of different times, and he said, hey, have you changed your tune yet? And I said, nope, not going to, and neither is the Bible. And so it isn't me that you have to take it up with. If you have a problem with that, take it up with God. And that just kind of shuts him down. But universalism has found its traction by people believing that there are other ways to get to heaven. You help them see that there isn't, that Jesus Christ is the only way to get to heaven, and a relationship with him is the only way to get there. Church, say amen. Amen. When you're comfortable and familiar with that, you'll be ready for those conversations. So in the presentation of all of this, you have to remember that God will open the door for you and people will climb over the hurdles that are necessary when you present things the right way. But also remember that God has placed within every person a mechanism that makes them hungry to talk about eternity. Solomon, the wisest man to ever live in the book of Ecclesiastes, would say that God placed within the heart of every man and every woman eternity so that we would be curious about it. We would have a longing for it. That longing has been visible for as long as mankind has been around. That longing and that mechanism has been visible for as long as we have held on to the Bible. And it is still there. I love the way Bill Hybels in his wonderful book, Just Walk Across the Room, details this. He says, There is in the heart of every man and every woman a desire to get to the other side of chasms. He uses the Mackinac Bridge to illustrate that. It joins the Upper Peninsula to the Lower Peninsula of Michigan. I've driven across it. A lot of you have as well. It's a beautiful bridge in a a beautiful part of the country. It's five miles long. Took three and a half years to complete. There are over a million steel bolts in it. 400,600 cubic yards of concrete. 42 miles of cable all in this thing. It took 11,000 men to build it. And all it does is connect the Upper Peninsula to the Lower Peninsula because the people on the Upper Peninsula wanted to fellowship with the people on the Lower Peninsula. And they needed a way to do it. Otherwise, they had to do it all by ship and it was very cumbersome, so they built a bridge. People have been building bridges forever. They really have. Tina and I lived in Canyon City, Colorado for a number of years. The Royal Gorge is there. It's 1,100 feet deep. People on one side of the gorge wanted to get to the other side of the gorge, so they build a bridge. The bridge goes nowhere. It literally goes nowhere, except from this side of the gorge to that side of the gorge. But it spanned the chasm. Well, that is simply an illustration of what people have tried to do between earth and heaven forever. Go with me to the Old Testament book of Genesis. We're almost done. Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. 
But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. All they were trying to do was build a bridge. They wanted to make earth and heaven connect, and people still do, through all kinds of different ways. Paul would tell Timothy, the young man in, in his faith, this, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge all the duties of your ministry. Paul was saying the time would come, and and we're living in it, when men would turn from sound doctrine and sound teaching from the truth of the Bible. They would try to find teachers that would tell them what their itching ears want to hear, which is this, how do I get to God? How do I get to heaven without having to go through Jesus Christ and surrender my life to him? That itch has been around for years and years and years, and it still is. If you really want to scratch that itch for people, you tell them the truth of Jesus Christ. And you tell them that that's how they'll bridge that chasm. That's how they'll find their way to heaven. It's a good time again for the church to say amen. Let me finish with this. Tina and I met with a financial advisor the other day, and he asked kind of a penetrating question. He said, what are your plans for retirement? This was our response. After thinking about it really pretty extensively, we said, death or rapture? That's a... That's about all we've got, so that's, that's our plan for, for retirement. And then he went on in all of our conversations, and he asked this question. He said, really, what, what do you plan on doing just right after you retire? What, what have you talked about? Well, we, we talked about some different things with him. My wife said, well, Phil's never going to retire, so it really doesn't matter. And there's probably a lot of truth in that. But in the midst of all of it, I found myself thinking of this question. We can easily, in evangelism, ask people things along this line. What are your plans one minute after you die? Because by then it's already set. What are your plans one minute after you die? They have to be intact before that moment. And that's just the truth. There's an urgency to us presenting the gospel because of eternity. It rests on our shoulders. God put it there. No matter how much we want it to be removed, God put it there. You're an ambassador. The question is, are you a good one?